0: to Brew Theology, this is Caroline May Miller, don't forget to share the brew. Welcome to the Brew Theology podcast friends, my name is Ryan Miller and I'm your host. Brew Theology exists to brew theology and to create healthy, meaningful and eclectic dialogue in pub communities. Yes, Coffee houses too, my friends. So today I am drinking a cold brew. That's right. It's coffee. It's cold. But it's from Starbucks, so I do apologize for that. If you haven't had a chance to look at our additional supplemental logo and branding, do so at Brew Theology. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's pretty cool. My buddy Kyle... Ramsey sumner is pretty ridiculously talented and humble so he will never get himself shout out so kyle cheers to you for the logo i love both logos i'm gonna have to get shirts and hats and all kinds of logos and coffee mugs and pint glasses so appreciate you kyle for your hard work now in today's podcast it's me solo I'm going to be talking about something very dear to my heart, something that I've been contemplating a while, processing in my journey, and it's called the turn. That's what I'm going to call today's episode, the turn. Some call this the flip. Some call this the shift. And in the Greek, you have the word metanoia, which is the word, the changing of one's mind. In the Hebrew scriptures, you have the word teshuva, which is to turn. These are these aha moments, mo- moments. This is when the light bulb kind of goes on and you begin to think to yourself, am I crazy? Am I alone? Is anybody with me in this journey? I know I need to do something. Something needs to change. When I met Lauren, man, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. It's been a while. We've been married 15 years. And I I look back when we first started dating and I just gotten back into my faith journey as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus at Baylor University. I just began to study religion again, started doing ministry, inner city ministry, but I was fresh, fresh, fresh into this new faith thing. And for me, when I read the Bible, I read it in a very black and white lens. I read it from a very fundamental, literal perspective, every story had to be factually true. Every word had to mean what it said, and if it didn't, I would lose it. And so I can remember even back then when I was started to date Lauren, and I, I think to myself now I'm like, wow, what, what were you thinking? Why would you date me? You know, she says she loved me and she saw something in me, which is fantastic. Uh, but I had made I've made so many shifts and turns and flips over the years. Uh, but the faith that I had back then, while it was very personal and it was very real and it was very profound, uh, it was extremely toxic in a lot of ways. I was very judgmental. I was judgmental toward all kinds of people. I thought that faith and theology and spirituality had to look a certain way. My faith was transactional. I felt like I had to sort of this accept this Christ into my heart and do this kind of deal with God in order to be saved. And others had to do the same. And it just got to be to a point, I think, in the first few years, uh, back when I started my faith journey again, uh, that I I needed to have a switch. I needed to have something change within me. And I knew something was wrong with how I was studying the Bible and looking at, at my faith, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't realize that I was kind of dealing in this dualistic sense of separating my mind and my heart and my body, which was actually pretty Gnostic if you think about it. Gnosticism is an early first century heresy and dealt with the separation of the body and the mind. And for whatever reason, I had nobody had given me handles on that and that language. I didn't really realize the roots of the Hebraic faith in the Christian story. I didn't understand how the Greek fathers came in and started to label things a certain way. And then eventually within the 20th century how faith began to live out in America. Nobody had taught me these things. So thank you to religious church history and seminary and reading all kinds of books afterwards. Uh, But I also thank my wife. Now, this isn't just about my wife and I right now in our journey. This, to me... Speaks to the human nature, that, that humans love to hold on to things that are dear to them. We love tribalism. We love sort of belonging in a certain way, thinking certain things to be true, not really wanting to experience and open our eyes and our hearts up to new things. But the more I think about this turn, it's critical for society and for civilization to move forward. And all I have to do really is to as a follower of Christ, I look at the Hebrew scriptures. That's the text that Rabbi Jesus would have used. And I read the story of Abraham and his first shift, his first turn, so to speak, when God calls him to go. And he goes. And then there's the story of his grandson, Jacob, the, the heel grabber, the one who na- who is named Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And in Genesis chapter 28, when he's trying to find himself and he's on this journey in the desert, he has this amazing celestial dream where the heavens are opened up and there's a ladder and it's called Jacob's ladder. It's a beautiful kid story, but it's so profound Because suddenly Jacob wakes up from this dream when God speaks to him and he says, Ah, surely the Lord, the Lord was in this place and I just wasn't aware of it. When the reality sinks in that the ground is sacred and then Jacob anoints the ground with oil and calls it Bethel, which means house of God. Jacob is making a statement that would shape the, the trajectory of the Jewish faith and the rest of scripture. That really the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it that the earth is filled with the glory of God. And so that was a major turn for Jacob. And if you, if you look further on, you look at David. And David has all of these kind of turns and shifts and very passionate songwriter. I love reading the Psalms. And David has this awakening uh, so to speak and he talks about how like you know God doesn't really need these sacrifices and uh, God just wants a contrite spirit. The prophets caught on to this because they said the same thing. And they said, really, it's all about just doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. The whole idea of a temple and a tabernacle. God really didn't need that. We needed that. You move even to Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm speaking specifically for those who kind of fall into the Christian faith or those who are just interested in it. Because Christianity, for what it's worth, has had a major influence and impact on our society today for good or for bad. But you look at Jesus and he talks about this kingdom of heaven on earth. He talks about this idea that the reality of God is truly in our midst, that it's within us and around us and that we're really not that far from it. He shows this way when he touches lepers, when he hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors, when he's always telling his disciples to go to the other side of the lake where the other people are. He breaks Sabbath laws and customs to prove a point about the heart of God and the heart of humankind. And so when Jesus begins to live out this way, even when he moves toward the cross, he shakes things up in such a revolutionary, radical kind of way that you can't help it when you read the scriptures. And this is what happened to me years ago. When I really started to read the gospels and understand Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, I began to turn, I began to have this awakening within me thinking that Jesus isn't just some mascot. God doesn't need some transactional thing so that Jesus and God can be on the same team in order for me to get into this place called heaven. Jesus is inviting me and us into this space called the shalom, the peace of God on earth as it is in heaven. And then, of course, when you move to Paul. The Apostle Paul is extremely radical. He takes this message of Jesus, this gospel. And uh, before he takes that message, you know, he is out there and he's killing Christians. He calls himself the Jew of Jews. He was highly credible, extremely religious, very devout. He thought he understood the heart of God. And then he begins to kind of make fun of himself. And he makes fun of people like himself at some point when he tells them that they should just cut their junk off in one of his letters. But before he had that turn... There was the moment as somebody who loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul and all of his strength. And yet he was just a little bit misguided. And we call this the conversion experience, but I I don't think it was so much a conversion as it was a turn. It was an awakening. It was a changing of his mind and of his heart where he's blinded by this light. And then he hears the voice of, you know, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? And then Paul Uh, starts this new journey and then he begins to say things like there is there's no difference between male and female there's no difference between jew and gentile slave or free paul is flipping the whole thing on its on its head he's shattering this system he makes the comment that in god we live and we move and we have our being So as opposed to this thought process that I had years ago where God was up there, this being high in the sky where I had to get to or achieve this thing or have Jesus come in and do this thing for me, the whole time, really, we've been in God and God has been in us. That's pretty revolutionary. That is an aha turn kind of a moment. Just like Jacob's story, just like David's, just like the prophet's, just like Jesus who walked with his father. And also, going back to Abraham, who made the first go, leave your town, turn, shift, flip. He did it. Now now not allowing people to the table because of their circumcision issues, if you will, is definitely frowned upon today. No one's going to be checking the ID of someone in their house. Hey, you can't eat at my table because you're not circumcised. At one point that was an issue. There was a turn there in society. Burning people at the stake due to their religious opinion. I think we would all agree it's no bueno. The list goes on. You look at slavery. Yes, obviously it's horrible. Keeping women from the voting booth. That's not good either. I can go on and on and on. There's so many examples that we can think of, but this is about This switch that happens somehow in our heart and in our mind where something from the outside and something from within, you might call it God, you might call it some external influence of society, whatever it is. But it allows us as individuals and us as communities to wake up, to wake up and to realize we need to have some kind of a paradigm shift. This involves a lot of wrestling, and I can't think of any other sort of metaphor and verbiage to use, but to to wrestle is to actually be like Israel. Israel it was the, the name that Jacob was given when he wrestled with God face to face, and he says, God bless me, and then he gets his hip knocked out of joint. But the whole idea of wrestling is embedded within the people of Scripture, the Jewish people, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and into the early church. I think without wrestling, without wrestling, we are ruined as a people. Whether you call yourself Jew or you call yourself Christian or you call yourself Buddhist or atheist, agnostic, Hindu, I don't really care the label that we use right now, whatever that may be, whatever you self-identify as, without wrestling, we're ruined. This has completely revolutionized and freed up my faith journey for me. Uh, I used to think that it had to be just one way and I couldn't really question that way and I couldn't really talk to God about certain convictions and feelings and sort of these promptings that I was having and conversations that I was having or books that I was reading, whatever it was. But now I've, I've come to a place where I've realized that the rootedness of my faith is in a people who always wrestle with God. That's as much theological truth as as any truth that there is, the the person, the people that come together and they really hash stuff out. Wrestling, that is the turn. And so for me, this comes back full circle to brew theology. Whether you're brewing theology in a coffee house, tea house, a pub, a microbrewery, or just in your house with a bunch of friends, you have to wrestle it out you have to have people who come to the table with their honest opinions and struggles and doubts and fears, their hopes and their aspirations, all of the beauty, all of the good, all of the joy, but also all the junk and the filth and the weirdness and the paradox and the complexities of what this thing life is all about. Can I get an amen? Can I can I get an amen? I'm, I know I'm preaching here, but I mean, so... Here's here's my challenge. Here's my challenge. I would love to see brew theology pop up across this nation. I really would. I'd love to see it, like I've said many times, across uh, from West Coast to East Coast. I've got friends who live in California and those who live in New Jersey. I have friends in Texas and Oklahoma and Michigan. This is going to move beyond Denver. I truly do believe that. But what it's going to take is it's going to take a turn. It's going to take... A metanoia, a changing of one's mind, an ability to actually try something that's a little bit different. I talk to people on a very regular basis here in Denver, also across the nation through social media and texting, and, and they're looking for something different. Now, this isn't to replace anything. For some people, you know, they might get a little bit hesitant with this brew theology thing because they may think, oh, well, Ryan, are you trying to change church? I'm like, no, I'm not trying to do that. I think people can do conventional church and they can go to church on Sunday and do those gatherings and services. That's completely fine. For some, though, this may be the only kind of church slash community or gathering, though, that they would ever attend. And for others who actually do go to conventional church services, they're looking for something different, too. I can promise you that. What this turn is going to take, it's going to take some patience. It's going to take the people who have control to release control. You see, when you sit at a table with a bunch of people from different heritage backgrounds, generations, male, female, young and old, what you're finding is you're gonna get a messy, you don't know what you're gonna get. You might think, oh, I just want people to kind of sing Kumbaya and be merry. You might not always get that. In some weeks, you may get some tension in your group. most weeks, if not all weeks, at the end of the gathering, there's no pretty bow. There's no one person who's going to wrap this thing up and tell everyone, okay, I love your opinions and all, but here is what you should believe. Ultimately, when we brew theology together, You'll have dissenting voices, and it's the dissenting voice that when you look at at the fabric of the faith, it's always that dissenting voice on the fringe that we all know we need, because that's either who we were, who we are, or who we will be, and it keeps it safe. So the paradigm shift, the turn, the flip, the aha, and the light bulb for all of us is simply to let these things happen. Let the conversation happen. Don't feel like you need to come in and correct people. Don't feel like you need to come in and say, Well, that's nice and all, but here's what the truth is all. No, no, no. Allow whatever truth to be to be explored, to be experienced. And at the end of the night, no matter if you think the person across the table is completely ludicrous or you think they're maybe brilliant or onto something, I think the best thing to do is to say cheers is to say peace is to say regardless of what you think about a B or C this theology, this political view, this socioeconomic issue. I love you. And there's some common good in the conversation because the truth is found in the wrestling. Well guys, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, Friends and family, thank you for listening to a short Brew Theology podcast. And I want to remind you that if you have not done so already, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Pod, Bean, Pocket, Cast. Share the brew, my friends. Follow us on Instagram at BrewTheology, Twitter, Brew underscore Theology, and like us on Facebook. If you have any questions, please send them to ryan at brewtheology.org. We've got a lot of fun podcasting coming up this season we are going to continue to have our conversations with about four or five friends in the living room hashing out the topics that we talk about here in denver every week at the breweries and i'm going to be bringing on some more guests like we had paula williams a few episodes ago Uh, i'm going to be talking to uh, a new friend of mine rabbi stephen booth nadav from the wisdom house in denver and that will be a fantastic episode I'm also going to be uh, bringing on a professor from um, ILIF School of Theology, Miguel de la Torre. He's a professor of Ethics and Latino y Latina Studies. That's going to be coming up very soon. And we're also hoping to bring on a Muslim to talk about uh, Islam and uh, Western relations. It's, man, I can't wait for that one. That one's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you continue to share this brew and we will see you Peace.